Revelation chapter 11. Real quick, too, as you guys are uh, taking your seats, just wanted to show you some examples here. If you ever wonder what the uh, Ministry of the Harvest Helping Hands do, this is one example. These are the hats that they made for the Cancer Society. The gals went and made them, and I think she said they made 31 hats. And then uh, Doris uh, went home and uh, decorated them up, and they also make the comfort bears for Sufficient Grace Ministries, and they also do dresses for Haiti. So these are just some of the little things they do, and a neat little tangible example of the love of Christ. So if you're interested in getting involved with this ministry, check out the bulletin next time that comes around. Um, Pretty cool stuff there, so wanted to uh, share that. All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 11. Now, we didn't get a chance to finish up chapter 11 last week, continuing our verse-by-verse study through Revelation. We left off in verse 15. So if you remember, this is what we call a little bit of a uh, spiritual parenthesis in the book of Revelation. We've been going through our study with this. And, and our timeline right here that we've been working on and working through, last week we talked about the two witnesses, you can see that there in the first half. And last week we talked about the temple being rebuilt and the peace treaty. And last week we went into the details of how they are working on rebuilding the temple. We showed the Dome of the Rock and the Wailing Wall over there in Israel and talked about how the Antichrist will come in and try to bring some peace to this crazy situation in the Middle East. We got into that a little bit. And we spent most of last week talking about that temple being rebuilt and the two witnesses and their ministry that they have. They ministered during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, right there at the abomination, of desolation. That is where they are martyred, and for three days they're out here, their bodies are laying around in the world, and then they are miraculously, amazingly resurrected up into heaven. And this really is a turning point to a lot of things. So what we're going to do here tonight is I want to finish up Lord Willing, Time Willing, chapter 11, and I'd really like to do chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a nice chapter within itself, and then really what's going to happen next week in Revelation 13 is... Um, a little bit of a change of pace. Revelation 13, we're really introduced to who the Antichrist is and who the false prophet is. And that's where we start to get into this, more to the second half here, if you will, of our study through the book of Revelation, which is a real quick reminder. I don't think it was in the bulletin yet. It should be in there for this Sunday, but the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, uh, we'll take a little bit of a break and we'll do a special Wednesday night service the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We'll do communion and we'll have a nice time there of uh, just a service of Thanksgiving to the Lord. So we'll take a small break from that in the book of Revelation, but I can hope you can still come out to that. That'd be the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. So without much further ado, we'll go ahead and leave this up. And let's start here. Revelation 11, verse 15. It says, Then the seventh angel sounded. There was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, who des destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, let's stop there for a second. One thing I love about the book of Revelation, and be really interesting to see, and it'd be a tough study to do. I would say probably next to the book of Psalms, there's probably more song lyrics out of the book of Revelation than what you could ever imagine. I mean, obviously, when we read through some of those there, we have sung a lot of those songs before, verse 15, verse 17, etc. It's always neat to see that. Praise and worship take a center stage up there in heaven. But what we need to talk about here is this is a really small little break because what's happening is heaven knows once these two witnesses are killed and once they're resurrected, the second half here of this tribulation, the first half is bad. There's no way around that. We've talked about this before. You have the seal judgments. You have the trumpet judgments. And we've said every week, if you thought the seal judgments were bad, the trumpet judgments make the seal judgments look like a walk in the park. If you thought the trumpet judgments were bad, the bold judgments coming up here in a couple chapters make those look like a walk in the park. 
I mean, we're going to be dealing with billions of people being killed. We're going to be dealing with nature being destroyed. I mean, with the trumpet judgments, we talked about how asteroids were hitting the earth and the waters are becoming bitter. All these horrible things. I hate to use this phrase, but this is the best phrase I can think of. It literally was becoming hell on earth. I mean, it was just a couple chapters ago in chapter 9 where we started talking about this demonic influence that was coming over the world. Here in chapter 9 that was happening. There's a little bit of a break, if you will, to kind of remind everybody what's going on. You've heard me say this every week, and it bears repeating. In the middle of judgment, there's always grace. It's easy to look at the book of Revelation and say, okay, there's going to be billions of people dying, but 144,000 that we studied earlier, they're out there proclaiming the gospel. The two witnesses that we studied last week, they're out there proclaiming the gospel. And I love what you have here today. Look, if you will, real quick at this one verse in Revelation 11, verse 18. The nations were angry, your wrath has come, the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great. Did you catch that there in verse 18? There's judgment and there's reward. This is the black and white of Christianity. You're either saved or you're not. Now, we haven't had a message like this in Revelation. This is more of a typical Sunday message, but you need to note this tonight. You're either saved or you're not. There's no middle ground. Now, what we like to do as a world and as a society is we like to make the extremes, the blacks and the white, and then we like to make this huge gray area where we just say things like, you know what, it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in the concept of a God. God has all these different types of names, and it's just this middle ground ecumenical slash watered-down thing. That's not the way it is. Verse 18, the time of the dead that they should be judged, and yes, you should reward your servants, the prophets. You're either going to be rewarded or you're going to be judged. Look here at your sheets, and I will put these verses down because we've got a lot of stuff to cover tonight rather than turning to them. You can see the two verses we put down your sheets. The classic John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, but whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then jump ahead to Matthew 25:41 on your sheets. Then he also will say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That word in the Greek, everlasting, is the exact word. Very simply put, you either have everlasting life or you have everlasting fire. There, there is no middle ground. Just like verse 18 of Revelation 11, you either are going to be judged or you're going to be rewarded. There is no middle ground. And one of the problems that we have today in Christianity is we like to make this really big middle section. That's just not the way it is. We have to realize and accept the fact you're either saved or you're not. New Testament even goes one step further. It says you're either of your father the devil or you're of your father God. Now, we don't like to look at it from that way because you know why? We all have unsaved friends and loved ones, and we don't like to look at them as, as destined to hell. Well, they really, you know, they, they believe in God. This is the thing I always tell people. Someone, if I ask somebody, hey, are they saved? And they, if they say something like, you know, I don't know or I don't think so, you know, if you have to say you don't know, it's usually not a good answer because hopefully our life is such a witness and such a light that hopefully it's evident to all the Bible says. And what you see here in Revelation 11, it just bears repeating, there's everlasting life, there's everlasting fire. And I know that's normally a Sunday message, but we have to hit these things even on Wednesday night. You can see what they're talking about here, this idea of judgment that will be coming. Any quick questions, comments about that part before we move on to the rest of here, what we're going to go through tonight? Okay. Real quick, verse 19, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Can you turn, if you will, real quick, to Hebrews chapter 8? This is an important point that I want to hit here real quick. Hebrews chapter 8. We've talked about this a lot on uh, Sunday recently as we're going through Romans, that how Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy can be absolutely boring books. When you stop and see the purpose of the law, you understand it. Now, that same thing as you study out the book of Exodus, and God goes into these intimate details of how the temple is supposed to be. 
Realize that temple is supposed to be a picture of Jesus. Here, look in Hebrews 8, verse 5. It says, Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now stay in the book of Hebrews and just go to verse 23 of chapter 9. It says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves will be better sacrifices than this. Do you realize that what you had down here on earth in the temple and the tabernacle was a copy of what was actually going on up in heaven? So now when you look at it from that perspective, it totally changes your study on the tabernacle and the temple. Because when we go back and read about the tabernacle and the temple, and you make the thing this many cubits long, you overlay it with gold, you use the Acadia wood, and you sit there and say, this is absolute nonsense. Why am I wasting my time reading about this stuff? This stuff doesn't matter. And then you wait. Once you get to the New Testament, you stop and say, wait a second. This is a picture of what's going on up in heaven. And when you have it from that mindset, then when you go back and you look at the temple, everything is a picture of Jesus Christ. Just like the, the sacrifices. If you just read the sacrifices in Leviticus as sacrifices, you do this to the animal, you do this to the blood, you do this to the flesh, you won't get past about four or five chapters until you say, forget it. But when you look at those sacrifices as a picture of Christ, we did that in our study in Leviticus, oh my goodness, all of a sudden they mean something. Same thing here with the temple. So here in Revelation 11, where John gets this little heavenly scene into heaven, and he sees the temple of God and the ark of his covenant, it all starts to make sense. And it's important that this verse is mentioned now in chapter 11, because what did we just study last week? This rebuilding of the temple. That really isn't the temple that we should be and supposed to be using here. Real quick reminder there. Hey, Callie, can you actually go to the next slide real quick? Remember this, we hit this last week. There's a picture of the tabernacle. That's what they had in Exodus. Go to the next one. Solomon's temple. This is the one we focus the most on. Go to the next one. Herod's temple. We talked about that. That was during the time of Jesus. Next one. Millennial temple. That's the one in Ezekiel that we talked about. And keep going here real quick. One more. Right there. Let's just stop there for a second. That's the table of the showbread. And the reason I just want to bring this picture up there with you real quick is this table of showbread, the reason they know how to make it is because in that type of detail as you studied out in the book of Exodus. Once again, if you just study that out and you say, okay, what's the big deal? That's Arcadia wood covered in gold. It's got this and that. When you really look at it now in Revelation 11 and you throw in Hebrews 8, 5, and you throw in Hebrews 9, 23, this is a picture of what's going on up in heaven. Wow. See, that makes a little bit of a difference to me. That makes a little bit of a difference when you stop and you say, okay, Lord, you think this is important enough that you gave us a copy of a heavenly scene that's going on, and we have a small glimpse into what eternity is going to be like, and that this table of the showbread really does mean something and really does represent something. So just keep that in the back of your mind here as we finish up that passage there in verse 19. It means something. There's a great heavenly picture going on. Go ahead and take us back to the timeline, if you will, guys. So... I know that's kind of a strange little teaching point right there because it finished up something we didn't have time to last week. So now we're going to get here into Revelation 12. Does anybody have any real quick questions, comments about verses 15 through 19 of Revelation 11? We hit that small parenthesis there reminding us of salvation. Also just a small picture of the temple there before we move on. Yeah, Ryan. Mm -hmm. I think the purpose that would have up there in heaven is the same. It's a, it's a memorial, and I think of the same thing. It's a picture to remind us of what Jesus Christ did. It goes back to the question we had last week. Why in the world would we set up a temple during the millennial reign? The temple during the millennial reign is there to remind us of what Jesus went through on the cross. It's the same reason that we do um, communion today. 
communion is there to remember what Christ did. If you remember, when we do communion in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, do this in remembrance of me. So when we have this heavenly scene of what's going on and we make a copy of what God has already ordained, it's really a way to show and picture Jesus Christ. That's the way I kind of look at it. I mean, it's just like anything. If you go on vacation, if you go on a trip, what do you do? You bring some token back, you bring some picture back, and you stick it up on your wall, right? Now, when you look at that picture of the beach in Honolulu that you went and visited, do you all of a sudden feel warm and want to go put a Speedo on and sit on your couch? Of course not. It's a picture. Well, it's the same thing with this type of stuff. It's a picture. And I think that's what happens up in heaven is you have this heavenly scene there. And, and to be honest, I don't know for sure what it's going to look like. You know why? Because God never revealed what it's going to be looking like when we get up there. But he says these are copies of what's going on up there. We could get up there and have these instruments up there. And as we're up there for all of eternity... It's going to be something to remind us of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So I think it's just there to be in remembrance, and it's a memorial. It's a, I hate to use the word quote-unquote souvenir. That sounds horrible, but it's a picture to remind us of something bigger going on than what we went through. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay, Revelation 12, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Love this. Verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. I love this stuff. Now, who's the woman? The woman's Israel. How do we know that the woman is Israel? Well, because you can look at all this stuff here and put it together. What you have here going on with the woman, let's talk about how we know it could be Israel. First off, when you see sun and moon, does anybody want to take a shot at that? What is that a reference to? Does anybody remember? Genesis 37, the dreams of Joseph. Joseph had those dreams, and he says that the 11 sheaves of grain bowed down to him, and he said also the sun and moon bowed down. And if you remember, Joseph's dad said, wait a second, you mean that my mom and I are going to bow down too? So it's a picture there of Israel. Twelve stars, pretty straightforward there, twelve tribes of Israel. So we know who the woman is. The woman's Israel. But what happens? Well, she's getting ready to give birth. Well, who's the child she's going to have? Let's jump ahead. Verse 5, we know the child is obviously who? Jesus. Why? Because we know that he's the male child to rule all nations with a rod of iron. We know from Scripture the Bible says that's what Jesus is going to do. So this is Israel talking about Jesus being born. But now we have this dragon. We have this dragon. Who's the dragon? We know from other Scriptures that the dragon is Satan. And I find this fascinating. We'll get to the seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. hate to do this. We'll get to that next week. Because that's a picture of what all that represents there with the Antichrist. So bear with me. We'll get to that next week. But we have Satan here ready to devour the child. Think about this. What was the first prophecy given in the Bible? Genesis 3. The first prophecy given was what? The sin problem had to be dealt with. So that's why God said in Genesis 3 that the, the uh, heir of the woman is going to battle the serpent. Well, that's what we've been doing ever since Genesis 3. The heavenly realm of Christ versus the satanic realm. And we talked about how the Bible says that the serpent will bite the heel of the child represents Jesus dying on the cross, but yet that the child will crush the head of the serpent, showing Jesus' ultimate victory. But Satan here has been wanting to devour this. Why? Because he knows, he knows that if you can take out Israel, he thwarted God's plan. Now, I don't want to get on my Israel soapbox here. It'd be really easy for me to do that. Israel is the key. Israel's always been the key. If you want to know what's going on in the world, just follow Israel. Follow Jerusalem. And so Satan has always tried to devour Israel. Go back through your Bible. 
How many times has there been a plan to take out the Jews? What did Pharaoh want to do in the book of Exodus? Kill all the Jews, all the Jewish children. What did Herod want to do? Kill all the Jewish children. What did they want to do in the book of Esther? Slaughter all the Jews. That's a satanic-inspired thing. Is they want to destroy Israel. What's the Antichrist going to do? Try to destroy the Jews. And it's not just biblical things. What did Hitler do? Try to destroy the Jews. This shouldn't be shocking. This is the plan from the beginning. And how do we know it's the plan? Because it says right there in verse 4, he's ready to devour the child as soon as it was born. Satan's not hiding his plan here. He knows if he takes out Israel, he won. And so that's why he was trying to destroy Israel is because if you take out the Jews, you take out the Messiah, therefore Satan wins. Well, a little quick point on this right here that you see. He takes a third of the stars of heaven with him. That's an important point there. When Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him. And so what you have right here is the child is born and the child is called up to God in his throne, verse 5 referring to the ascension of Christ. That's what we're talking about right there. Let's move on. We'll come back and hit a few of these points here real quick. Verse 6, and it says, And the woman, woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, and they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was there found a place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Real quick there. Can you guys put that PowerPoint back up real quick? I'm going to make a uh, real point about this. You catch this right here in verse 6. It says that for 1,260 days, you can see that right there. Remember in prophecy in the Bible, a year is 360 days, not 365. So... For 1,260 days, they are protected in the wilderness. That's the second half here of the tribulation. So what's going to happen is this. Satan, through, through the Antichrist, is going to try to take out Israel, which you see there in verse 5. Well, excuse me, try to take out Satan. Well, what you have here in verse 6 is during the second half of the tribulation, the Antichrist goes in and he does that event called the Abomination of Desolation. He goes into the rebuilt temple, and as he goes into the rebuilt temple, he sets himself up as God. As soon as that happened, Israel realizes and learns, we were wrong. This guy is not our savior. This is not right. So Israel, during the second half of the tribulation, 1,260 days, is taken into the wilderness and protected by God for the second half of the tribulation. And we'll get to that here in a few little bit. But a couple quick points there, and you can look on your sheets from Revelation 7. Note, Satan still has access to heaven. That's why it talks about war being broken out and Satan being cast down. We don't think about it from that perspective. And when we think of Satan, go back to Sunday school, what do you think of? First off, he's red, he's got a pointy tail, he's got a pitchfork, and he's sitting in hell or for some reason. No, he's not. He still has access into heaven. Now we know this. Check out the references there. Zechariah 3, Job verse 1. What Satan does, and we can put this all together now, he has access into heaven. What he's doing on a regular basis is he's standing before God the Father making accusations against us, the church making little comments probably along the line of, come on, Lord, you really want to use them? Really, really, you really think that then their sin, you can save them? Look at them, they claim to be a Christian and they do this and they do that. He's constantly making those accusations. Look ahead here real quick, verse 9 of Revelation 12. So that great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Just quick note, devil means accuser, Satan means adversary, who deceives the whole world. Remember what Jesus said about Satan. He's the father of lies. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, the power of his Christ, has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been cast down. 
Right there is your heavenly scene. You have God the Father on the throne. You have Jesus sitting at his right hand. And you have Satan constantly making accusations against the body of Christ. Constantly doing this. And so what happens is every time Satan makes an accusation, I just have this picture of Jesus saying, I got it covered. First John says that Jesus is our advocate, which is a Greek term, which means defense lawyer. So you have God the Father who's just. Sin has to be punished. Satan knows this. So Satan sits up there and says, look, they sinned. Just punishment now. Jesus steps up and says, I got it covered. That was what the cross was for. He's the defense lawyer. And there's this whole almost uh, Matlock Perry Mason scene going up there all the time, if you want to look at it from that perspective. So this is what Satan does. Well, eventually it reaches a point where it's almost like God says, enough is enough. Get out of here. So what happens is during the second half of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven. No more access. No more nothing. Cast out of heaven. And as he's cast out of heaven, he's then thrown down to the earth, which is what we just read right here. So what's he going to do? Verse 11. And it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. I just got to stop there real quick. A real quick application point. How do you have victory in life? The Lamb. That's what it comes down to. I don't care what you're facing here tonight. I don't, I don't care if it's a health concern, a marriage concern, a life concern, a concern with your kids, with your grandkids, with your job, with, with whatever it is. The only way you overcome that problem is by Jesus Christ there, verse 11. Too often times I see people trying to do it on their own. I can do this. I just need to spend a little more time with my kids and I'll point them in the right direction. If I just work a little bit harder on this marriage, it'll be okay. If I just go out and do this, everything will be fine. The only way you will have any victory in life, in life in any capacity, is verse 11 by over being overcome by the blood of the Lamb. I cannot stress this to you enough, is that you just got to hand it over to Christ. And I know this is one of the most simplistic points, but it doesn't get any simpler or easier. One of my favorite verses is 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. You know, I had somebody call recently, and they're going through a very, very difficult time. And the phone call was going rough. They were really upset. They were really worked up. I stopped them for a second. I said, hey, have you prayed about this? I said, no. I said, Let's, let's just stop and pray about this right now. Because you and I can sit here until we're blue in the face discussing it from every angle and what we need to do to fix this and what has to happen. And the truth of the matter is we just got to hand it over to Jesus Christ. And so when you take that simple approach of I'm going to give it over to the Lord, you look at verse 11 and yeah, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Lord, it's really that easy. I just give it over to you and you take care of it. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. He's got three and a half years. He knows that. How does he know that? Because I'm sure the enemy knows the Bible better than we do. What happens in three and a half years? Well, three and a half years, Satan is bound for a thousand years during the millennial reign, which we'll get to in Revelation chapter 20 and in Revelation 19. But so Satan uses his final time here to cause as much wrath as he can on the earth. So you have this amazing heavenly scene. You have this Israel being pictured, going to give birth to the Savior. Satan tries to destroy that. And what happens is when he's not victorious, what happens is the Antichrist, empowered by the enemy, by Satan, turns on Israel during the second half of the tribulation, tries to destroy Israel. Israel then flees into the wilderness where they're protected by God for the last three and a half years. God says enough is enough. He casts Satan out of heaven, and Satan is now thrown down to the earth where he knows he has three and a half years. And that's why I use that phrase sometimes, it will be hell on earth. Satan will be reaping havoc here on earth. Let's finish this up, verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Real quick, time and times and half a time is three and a half years. A time is one, 
times is plural, which is two. So one plus two is three, and half a time is obviously a half. So for three and a half years, she's protected in the wilderness, which we just talked about. Verse 15, so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon has spewed out of his mouth. Now, this is one of those times in the book of Revelation where you stop and you look at verses 15 and 16 and you say, what? Now, you've heard me say this in our study in Revelation before. What does this mean that the enemy is spewing water out of his mouth like a flood and the earth opens up and helps the woman? It could be symbolic. The Bible talks about that all the time, coming in like a flood, like a destructive flood. And a lot of times the references to that, especially in the book of Isaiah, do not literally mean water. It means a destructive force. The Antichrist will have an army at this time. It's quite possible that he's going to kind of come in and take out Israel, hiding in the wilderness, and they'll be destroyed by the world, by, by the Lord. It could also be literal. I don't know. I don't really think it's a literal flood that comes out of the mouth and the earth opens up. But as soon as I start saying that, I start thinking, okay, Lord, you also did part the Red Sea. And also when you had the rebellion of Korah, you also opened the earth up and you devoured them. So you know what? If God wants to do a literal flood with a literal earth opening in verses 15 and 16, that's his choice. I'm not going to argue with him. The point, though, is Israel is divinely protected for the last three and a half years, but then look at verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, who, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who's that? Body of Christ, church, who keeps the commandment of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what basically Satan says is Israel can't be touched. So for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, it's a full-on attack on anything that would be Christ-like or Christian, which we'll see here in a little bit here. So Revelation chapter 12 covers the gambit, the gambit of what's going to be going on. And there's thousands of years of history there and really 17 short verses. In Revelation 13, we're introduced to the Antichrist and the false prophet are. But before we close up, any quick questions, comments about Revelation 12? John? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he could have given marching orders to the army to go get them. Yeah, I know. And as soon as I said the church, the body of Christ, I thought there's going to be somebody that's going to say, James, the church and body of Christ have been raptured. And you're right, okay? You're right. Okay, anything else? No, no. Church, yes, technically speaking, the church and the body of Christ will be raptured out. So who is he making war against? He's making war against those that got saved during the tribulation. Thank you, Mr. Legalism. Anyway, else, Tina. Be witnesses in the sense of, I mean, 144,000? Yes, there will be some Jews that don't flee. And you can go check out, uh, uh, what is it, Matthew 24. Jesus says when this happens, flee, get out of there. And there's going to be some that don't. And actually, if I remember correctly, I think it's in Zechariah chapter 14 where it talks about um, like two out of every three Jews are killed or something like that. I mean, a chunk, a remnant is saved, but there's going to be some Jews that do not flee. Check that on Zechariah 14 and Matthew 24. Yeah, Ryan. Mm -hmm. No, it doesn't look like that way because it looks, if you look at verse 8 one more time, it says, They do not prevail nor has found a place for them in heaven any longer, so the great dragon was cast out. We still know that he has access to God now, once again by Zechariah 3 and Job 1. So we know that he still has access to God right now. So the assumption is that this does not happen until that middle part of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. That's the way it kind of looks like that they are finally kicked out of heaven completely. Now we do know if chunk of those third of the angels are active in what's going on in the earth because obviously if you read through the uh, New Testament Gospels, those are the demonic forces that were on the earth and we know that that stuff goes on. So yes, a third of, part of those are still on the earth right now doing damage and doing havoc right now. But Satan still, from what we can piece together, still has access until this part where God finally says enough is enough and he fully kicks him out. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Yeah, this, this would be the, the door being locked behind them type thing. I look at uh, where it talks about a third of the angels fell with him in verse 4. I look at that being that time too where he said he saw Satan fall like uh, lightning from heaven. And, you know, you talk about the original rebellion. It's kind of an interesting, quote-unquote, rebellion that happened. I encourage you to check it out. It's Isaiah 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. Because what happened was Satan wanted to be like God. He wanted his own kingdom. He wanted his own power. He wanted that pride and power. And so that's what caused his fall there. So I want a little more background on that, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Ron. The Bible calls Satan the ruler of this world and the god of this age. But basically has happened is when sin came into the world back in Genesis 3, God basically said, okay, you guys want sin to rule your lives? Fine, this is what sin does. And so now that's why when people come up to me and say, well, why does God allow this? Or why is this world like this? God is allowing the enemy to be the ruler of this age. Now, I always put a little clause on this. It's not that Satan has overpowered God and said, now I have the world. God has stepped back and said, fine, human beings, you want sin to rule your life. This is the effects of sin on your world. And so when it says that Satan is the god of this age, the ruler of this world, it's because the Lord has stepped back and allowed him to have that power to rule to show us this is the effect of sin and the rule and reign of the enemy, which is important because once we get to the millennial reign here in a couple of chapters for a thousand years, Jesus reigns to say, now guys, prepare. You've had a thousand years with me reigning and you've seen how the world can be and you've had thousands of years of, of the enemy reigning and you see how the world can be. What do you really want? So yes, that's what it means there, that the enemy is the Lord of this age because the God has stepped back and said, fine, you want sin to rule. That's what he does. During what? The, uh, yeah. I believe where it says that third of the stars fell in verse 4, I believe that that happened in the past. I believe that that is a past event right there. And so what it's saying here is the third of the stars fell when Satan had that original rebellion, as Ryan was mentioning, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. That's where a third of the angels went with Satan at that time. They are finally kicked out, if you will, door locked, coming up here in a little bit. But when the original fall happened, they went with Anybody else have anything? Yeah, Tina. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to the point I, I, I've always thought as a kid. When I grew up in Sunday school, I always put Satan and Jesus as these equals trying to duke it out. And Jesus created Satan. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is God. Michael is an archangel. What we can piece together is uh, uh, Satan was, if I remember correctly, I think it was a cherub. cherubim. And so there are angel beings there. Jesus is, is not on the same level. I mean, Jesus is God. Satan is an ant. And so it's important there because you read this passage in verse 7, it almost sounds like Satan's got this power and he's almost overtaking heaven. And oh my goodness, what's going to happen? No, it's, it's not like that at all. It's like the little mosquito that lands and you just flick it off. I mean, that's all it can do. That goes back to that prophecy in Genesis 3. Satan bit the heel. That's important there to note that in Genesis 3. Anybody else got anything here before we close up? Yeah, Carly. Yeah, Petra. Yep, some people believe that when it says they went into the wilderness in verse 6, etc., that they believe that that could be a place in the wilderness called Petra. And if you want to take a look at that, I encourage you to go home and type in Petra there into the computer, and you can read up all about that. Some people believe that that may be a reference to um, that Petra area that's kind of a defense place, that that's possibly where they could be. Could be. Could be. Yep. City of Petra. Could be. Did you mention Last Crusade? Is that what you said? Yeah. That's two Indiana Jones references, two Wednesdays in a row. Come back next week and we will work in our third Indiana Jones reference. <laughs> and just for fun, we'll work one in on the Thanksgiving special. Just for fun there. There you go. Anybody else have any final questions, comments here? All right. We got, once again, we have kids looking into the window, which is our cue to go. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the time to be here. And what matters most, as always with these lessons, is do we know you, Lord? And just as we read earlier here today about there is the reward and there's the judgment, there's everlasting life, there's everlasting fire. 
Lord, thank you for being our Savior. And Lord, if we have unsaved friends and loved ones, we pray that we could be a light and a witness to them that they may enjoy the everlasting life of Jesus. And Lord, all these details don't matter unless we know you. Thank you for being our Lord and Savior. And we love you and we praise you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.